Welcome to the Athens First United Methodist Church Sermons Podcast. I'm Kayla Thomason, a member of the communications team. We hope you enjoy this weekly resource. Well, good morning, Athens First United Methodist Church. It is good to be with you on this second Sunday of the month of August, and it is an important weekend in the life of our city because as I understand it, It is on this weekend that the population of Athens increases by about 30,000. It is move-in weekend uh, at the University of Georgia, and we just want to say a special welcome to any family that may be visiting with us that is dropping off your child. If you thought for any reason that it might just be a good thing to get a little Jesus Before that first semester begins, we are glad you are here, and we hope you feel right at home. Now, uh, this morning we are in uh, week four of our new series. It's called uh, The Gospels, and we have been looking uh, each and every week at uh, each of the four Gospels. We've been, we started with the Gospel of Mark. We moved on to Matthew, then Luke. Uh, today we look at the Gospel of John, and what we're doing is we are looking at each of the Gospels individually. We're trying to boil them down to their very essence to ask the question, what makes this gospel unique from the others? What is it that this gospel tells us about Jesus that helps us understand the good news in a new way? This morning, we look at the last of the four gospels. We look at the gospel according to John. We're going to read the first five verses, and then we'll skip ahead to verses 9 through 14. Hear now the word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people didn't accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh. And He lived among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory as of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. This is the Word of God for the people of God. So back when I was a freshman in college, Uh, I went to a small school in the mountains of Western North Carolina. It was called Montreat College. And because Montreat was a Christian school, there were a number of classes that were required for incoming freshmen to take. Uh, One of my favorites of those required courses was called Introduction to the Gospels. Now, I wish I could tell you that the reason why Introduction to the Gospels was one of my favorite classes Uh, was because the lectures were so riveting. 
or, or because it ignited a, a fiery biblical passion within me that one day led me into the ministry, but that wouldn't be true. Uh, no, the real reason it was one of my favorites is because it only required me to buy one book for the entire semester. <laughs> and anyone who has had to purchase college textbooks recently can tell you what a big deal that is. Because all of my other classes practically bankrupt me. Uh, but this class, just one book. And it is to this day, perhaps the most unique book that I've ever owned. It was called A Parallel of the Four Gospels. Now, what makes A Parallel of the Gospels unique is the fact that it is unlike any book that you've probably read in your life. Because it's not the kind of book that you pick up and you read cover to cover. It's not the kind of book that's filled with paragraphs or pictures or even really a plot line. No, the only purpose of a gospel's parallel is so that you can read all four gospels at the same time side by side. Uh, because you see, each page is, is divided into four separate columns. Each column represents a gospel. And so, for example, if you wanted to, to study the differences or, or the similarities of, say, the story of Jesus' baptism, with the Gospels parallel, you don't have to turn to, to Matthew 3 and then to Mark 1 and then back to Luke chapter 3. No, Gospels parallel does all the work for you because it literally puts the stories side by side by side, and you can read them all at the same time. Now, if you've ever read a Gospels parallel, one of the things you notice really quickly is the fact that the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are really, really similar. Um, there are a lot of the stories of Jesus that they all tend to share. Uh, there are a lot of teachings of Jesus that they all tend to share. They even share a very similar plot line from beginning to end. In fact, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke even have a special name because of their similarity to one another. They are called the Synoptic Gospels. And uh, synoptic literally means seen together. So when you see together the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're kind of like three peas in a pod because there's just so many similarities between the three. But when you look at the column reserved for the Gospel of John, when you look at that fourth column all the way over on the right-hand side, you cannot help but notice that John is kind of the odd Gospel out. Uh, the number of stories and teachings of Jesus that it shares with the other three Gospels are very few and far between. In fact, just a very quick look through uh, Gospels Parallel. If you just thumb through its pages and you look at where, where the stories are in the first three columns and where the stories are in the fourth column, you realize very quickly that the Gospel of John is really different. Now, one of the reasons why the Gospel of John is different could be because it has long been believed to have been the last Gospel that was written. Uh, scholars tell us that, that Mark was probably written first, then came Matthew and Luke, and then all the way at the end we had the Gospel of John. So could it be that John knew about the other three Gospels? Could it be that he actually read some of the other three Gospels and he said, hey, these are good, helpful stories, this is a great start, but 
They left some important stuff out. The, the, the puzzle is missing some pieces, and so I need to fill in the blanks. And so maybe John said, I'm going to do just that. I'm going to write my own gospel. And I'm going to make sure that the whole story gets told. Eh, could be. It could also be because as early as the year 100 A.D., the Gospel of John was believed to have been written by one of Jesus' closest disciples. His name was John, the son of Zebedee. Now, if you were here in week one, one of the things we mentioned is the fact that, that we don't actually know who wrote each of the four Gospels because no one actually took a pen and signed it at the end. We believe they're all attributed to the right person, but we don't know that for a fact. And so when it comes to the Gospel of John, the, really the only thing we absolutely know is that it had to have been written by someone who was privy to some really intimate information. He, the, the person who wrote this Gospel must have been an eyewitness to some of the most important events in Jesus' life. For instance, I've always thought that one of the most interesting aspects of the Gospel of John is the fact that it is the only Gospel that gives us five chapters of insight into the final night of Jesus' life. Literally, one quarter of the Gospel of John is, is focused on the final stories and teachings and instructions and prayers that Jesus offers his disciples in the upper room at the Last Supper. I mean, th this, is, this is incredibly detailed stuff. It makes you feel like you were right there in the place, experiencing it with the rest of the disciples. So at the very least, what that tells us is that this could not have been written by some like random third-party author, nor was it written by a guy who knew a guy who heard it from a friend and then he just jotted it all down. No, clearly the Gospel of John must have been written by someone who, to borrow a phrase from the musical Hamilton, who was in the room where it happened. Because clearly that person was there. They heard every word. They were an eyewitness. And thus, they wrote it all down. Now, does that mean that it had to have been John, the son of Zebedee? Not necessarily. But it certainly seems likely. The only thing that we do know for certain, though, is the fact that John, well, John is a gospel that is really, really different from the other three. And of course, there's like a million different things that we could highlight that kind of uh, help us understand why it's different or what makes it different. Like this morning, we could go into how John is the only gospel that gives us the, the seven I am statements of Jesus. Or we could talk about how John never actually talks about any miracles of Jesus. He only refers to the signs of Jesus because those signs tell us about who Jesus was and, and what he was all about. So there's like so many different things that we could use to kind of highlight why John is different. But if you ask me, the thing that highlights it the most is how John begins his gospel. Because, of course, Matthew starts with a genealogy, right? And if you look at Luke, he starts by addressing his recipient, Theophilus. If you look at Mark, he just jumps right into the life and ministry of Jesus. But John, John does something decidedly different. Because if you look at the opening words of John, the first thing you notice is that these are the same first three words of another book of the Bible, 
It's the book of Genesis. And do you remember back in Sunday school class when you learned from Genesis 1? How did it start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so it's this kind of cosmic perspective that tells us about how the, how the world was begun. John says, I, I want to use that same cosmic perspective. I want to start in that very same place. So he uses the same first three words. He says, in the beginning. Only John doesn't want to tell us about how the world began. No, he wants to tell us about something else that was there and existed in the beginning. John calls it the Word. Now, what exactly does John want us to understand about this Word? Well, he says there's like three things to start with. He says there's three different kind of layers to this Word. It's, it's very multidimensional. It's multifaceted. Number one, he says, in the beginning, the Word was there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so at the very least, what we know about this Word is that there's this kind of divine nature to it. He, I mean, literally, John is saying this Word was God. And so to prove that, he says, well, let, let me tell you not just what the Word is, but also let me tell you what the Word has done. And so in verses 3 through 5, he kind of launches into this kind of divine resume about the Word. And notice what he says. He says, through him, through this Word, all things were created. Not a single thing that we can find in our world that is created wasn't created by him. More than that, though, he says, in this word um, was life, and that life was the light of all humankind. That, that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. For 13 verses to start off his gospel, John begins by telling us about the word. He wants to tell us what it is, and he wants to tell us what it's done. And, and so as a reader or as a listener to the Gospel of John, I'm sure most of us are nodding our heads going, okay, that's cool. I mean, it's interesting stuff, John. We really do appreciate it. But what's the point here? Like, why have you started your entire Gospel, 13 opening verses, by telling us about nothing other than this word? Like, why is this so important to you? And that's the point at which John says, I'm so glad you asked. Because it's in verse 14 where John gets to where he's trying to go because he says, listen, this word that I've been telling you about from the very beginning of the gospel, the, the, the word that was with God and the word that was God, well, let me tell you something. That word became flesh. And he made his dwelling among us. In other words, what John is doing is he's dropping like this theological bomb on us in verse 14 because for John, this is his Christmas story. This is his way of telling us how God, the creator of the universe, came to us and became human and lived among us in the person of Jesus Christ. Of course, the, the fancy theological word for that is incarnation. Because incarnation is when God put on human flesh. And so John says, listen, you, the, the, 
The incarnation is where you've got to start if you want to understand my gospel. You, you need to understand that this is the foundation on which I'm about to build the rest of my gospel because every other story that I tell you from here on out is going to be about this guy named Jesus. And what I need you to understand about this Jesus is that he wasn't just some, some really good guy who did really good things. He wasn't just like a, a prophet or a priest or a holy man of God. No, Jesus was God. He was the walking, talking, active embodiment of God himself. He was the Word made flesh. And you need to understand that from the very beginning of my gospel, or else the rest won't make a lick of sense. Because in the gospel of John, to see Jesus is to see God. The word for that is incarnation. And I gotta tell you that for, for a long time, I don't know that I really understood the incarnation like, when I was growing up, I always knew that the incarnation was kind of this, this, this understanding that God sent Jesus to reveal God's self to us and to reveal God's love for us, which is great. But, like, wasn't there another option for God? Like, couldn't have God picked some other way to, 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 to give us the message of his love for us? Couldn't he be, like, sent us a Valentine's Day card every year? Couldn't he have, like, you know, written it in the stars, you know, aligned the constellations to tell us, I love you? Every night before bed, if we look up into the night sky, we, we see clouds assemble into the shape of, of hands, like heart hands. Like, could that have been, like, God's... There's, like, so many ways that God could have done it, so why the incarnation? Well, for years, that always kind of was a head-scratcher for me. I, I, did, I can't say that I always understood it. But when I was in my early 20s, I came across a book written by a guy named Philip Yancey. Um, the book was called The Jesus I Never Knew. And in this book, he gives kind of an explanation that really hit home for me. There was just something about it that made me go, oh, this makes me look at it in a different way. Because he said, uh, years ago, I had a saltwater aquarium in my house. And he said, uh, it was a great aquarium, beautiful aquarium, it loved it, but... He said it was a pain in the neck to take care of <laughs> uh, because my, it just took so much effort for me to do all of the right things to make sure that the fish were okay and they were good. I had to make sure that all of the water levels and the chemicals were right. I had to make sure that the water balance and the filters were just so. I had to make sure it was always in the right kind of lighting and such. He said I would clean the, the tank at least once a week. I would feed the fish daily to be sure it was a lot of work. And so one would think that after all of this effort that Philip Yancey had put into taking care of his fish, that his fish would at the very least be grateful. <laughs> he said, you would think that like when I came near the tank, they would like wag their tails a little bit, you know, kind of like a puppy would, to just express some level of appreciation and enthusiasm for all the things I do for them. But he said that wasn't the case. Instead, he said, my fish only showed me one emotion, and that was fear. He said, whenever my, my shadow would come looming over the tank, they would literally like duck behind rocks and hide 
for cover because they were certain that I was there to harm them in some way. Of course, I loved my fish. I I just didn't know how to convince them of that. And so it is, he said, I kind of realized over the course of time that in a lot of ways, I was kind of like God for my fish. Because I, I, I loved them, and I wanted to take care of them, and I wanted to help them. I just didn't know how to convince them of that. Because I was just too big for their little fishy brains to comprehend. Ultimately, he said, I realized that if I was ever going to convince my fish that I really did care for them, that I would have to ultimately do the impossible. And that is, I would have to become a fish like them. You know, I'd have to become something that allowed me to to speak to them on a fishy level. I'd have to relate to them in a way that only fish relate to one another. In other words, he said, my only hope for letting my fish know that I actually love them was to become one of them. Now, obviously, that is not something any of us have the ability to do, not even Philip Yancey. None of us has the ability to become a fish. But you see, that's why John started his gospel the way he did. He said, we need to start with the incarnation because more than anything, what I want you to understand is that that is exactly what God did for us. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And if we ever asked John, so what do we call the Word? Is there a name for the Word? He'd say, absolutely. You can call him Jesus. John said, you, you got to... You've got to start there if you want to understand my gospel. You've got to begin with the incarnation because, you see, I'm about to tell you a story about Jesus. In everything you see Jesus do, whether it's healing a blind man or, or feeding the 5,000, whether it's welcoming children into his arms or even dying on a cross, Everything you see Jesus do is not because he was a a good man doing good things or even a godly man doing godly things. It's because he was God himself. Because in the Gospel of John, when you see Jesus, you're seeing God. Look, I I guess what I'm trying to say to you this morning is this. Um, The Gospel of John... If you ever take the time to read it from front to back, one of the things you'll notice is it's really different. You know, compare it to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you, will tell, you can tell. It, it is just entirely its own, completely unique. But I also think John knew that. I don't think that was a surprise to John whatsoever, because when you look at chapter 21, one of the last things that John says to us is this. He says, now Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, all of which were not included in this gospel. In other words, I know there are other gospels out there, and I know that there is material about Jesus that I didn't include. But, he says, but this, all that you've read from beginning to end, 
All of this was written for one reason. It's so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. In other words, the Gospel of John is the best kind of different. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we give you thanks for your word this morning. And we give you thanks for your Gospels. We give you thanks for how each one lets us know more about you in ways that we never would know had it not been for Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. We especially thank you this morning, God, for the incarnation that the Word truly did become flesh and make its dwelling among us. We thank you for Jesus, for it is in Jesus that we learned how to live and we've learned how to love. So God, help us to do that this week. Help us to become an embodiment of your love to the world. Help us, help us to live out our incarnational faith. It is in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to stand and sing our hymn of response. Let's stand and sing. Thanks for listening. To listen to more sermons, read past devotions, or look up opportunities on how to connect, visit us at AthensFirstUMC.org. Stay in touch with us throughout the week by following us on Instagram or Facebook at AthensFirstUMC.